Welcome to episode 74 of Control the Controllables. Today, we have another Grand Slam champion, another Wimbledon champion. Uh, It really does blow me away when I think about these guests that we're getting on the show. It's an unlikely Wimbledon champion. It's a one you might need to rack your brains with a little bit. 2005 doubles, men's, came through qualifying. Nobody really knew them. Ended up beating the third seeds, the first seeds, and then the second seeded Bob and Mike Bryan in the final. His partner was Wesley Moody. My guest is Stephen Huss. A great guy, went on after his playing career to, to coaching, coaching on the tour, and then he spent years at the USTA and really does have a great tennis mind. You'll find out who his famous cousin is, who has made three Grand Slam finals but never won a Grand Slam. And we do, we, it's a real tennis talk. We talk about his life, his career. We get into his opinions. He's a big one for data analysis. He's a big one for video analysis and doing the best possible job he can to, to give his players the edge. I think you'll really enjoy it. He's a, he's a good dude. And I'm now going to pass you over to Steve Huss. So Stephen Huss, a big, big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing, mate? Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, you guys are running a great podcast. I've listened to you know almost all of them, I would say, and uh, it's been fantastic uh, learning and listening. So appreciate the work you're doing. No, it's it's been honestly. I've said it a few times, Stephen, but it's it's an absolute pleasure, you know, to sit here and talk with a lot of great minds in tennis and a lot of successful people. It's it's been a real pleasure to do. And just just for the listeners, so Stephen was. Uh, Career high of 21, I believe, in, in doubles. However, those of you that know your tennis, back in 2005, alongside Wesley Moody, came through the qualifying event at Wimbledon, doubles, and went all the way through to win the title. So we have another Wimbledon champion on our hands, and I'm excited to get into some of that. And I was just looking at some of the names. I'd looked at your, your, your run through to that title. And it was like, Blink Connect. You, and and I, then I remembered, I think you, you beat the top four seeds or so, didn't you? Uh, yeah, we beat the top three seeds. Yeah, we, we beat uh, yeah the top three seeds and then the sixth and the ninth seed. But I would say that the ninth seed was uh, a guy by the name of Todd Woodbridge who'd won there nine times. Um, and so that was one of our hardest... Um, biggest challenges especially for me uh being australian um so yeah we had an unbelievable run and uh, it was it was it was a it was great fun and uh, and we beat a lot of good pairs at that time so it was good fun well I, i'll look forward to getting into that in a little bit more detail you know we also go back a little way we were in the same conference back in the day at uh, the southeastern conference in, in america so we'll get into some of the the college things He's also been working for the USTA, so there's lots that we can get into on the coaching side. So it's all about which topics we pick today to, to pick your brain. But I guess as a tradition on the podcast, it'd be great to find out, I guess, your journey into tennis. How did the whole thing start for you? 
Sure, yeah. I mean, uh, my father was the first one to sort of just take me to the tennis courts. He was a recreational player um, and enjoyed tennis. So he introduced me uh, to the sport and I'd occasionally go with him. And then I started getting a little bit of coaching when I was pretty young, probably, you know, six or seven, something like that. Uh, and then it just grew from there. And I think that um, I mentioned to you I, that, you know, my cousin was a pro player from Sweden. And so he used to come out to Australia. And I remember when I was about, you know, 12, 13, 14, he would come out and play Australian Open juniors and then seniors. Um, and that was kind of, as I look back on that, I think that was kind of important that I saw a family member, someone that I knew uh, had been successful in tennis. And I think that was a, a little bit of a, a little bit of a spur on to take it more seriously and, and, and play it, you know, more and more. So that's kind of how I got into it and then just went the sort of the junior route in Australia. I, I wasn't particularly great as a junior. I didn't travel nationally until I was 16 and I never traveled internationally at all in the juniors. So I was kind of that guy that was pretty good, but not in the elite ranks. Um, and then obviously it took me, took me into college um, to America and went that route. And then after college uh, went out and played pro. So yeah, I think everyone's got a different path. Yeah, no, completely. And, and, and that's why I asked the question actually. And I think, you know, doing a couple of these podcasts, sometimes I can feel I'm repetitive with that question, but I think getting the listeners to really understand that there is so many different ways into this sport and, we, we really need to get away from the whole comparison that Billy does that and Bobby does that. So I have to do that because it is, it's finding your own way. And I guess a couple of things to jump into being from Australia, if you're not in the absolute elite in the ages, do, do you tend to then not travel because it is so expensive and such a big ordeal to travel to, to play tournaments? Does that tend to be the Australian way? Uh, it really wasn't, you know, at that age, at that time, it wasn't, it wasn't even in my thoughts to be able to do that. It was just kind of like, oh yeah, the holidays are coming up and there's some local tournaments to play and I'll play those. And, you know, I did pretty well without, you know, doing outstanding. So no one was, you know, the Federation wasn't knocking down my door saying, go and play that or, or go do that. So it was never really, uh, an, never really an option for me, um, at that point. So, I'm not sure how the other ones my age saw it, but I did have a couple of friends that would travel, you know, in, into different states to play, you know, points tournaments and get their Australian junior ranking up and, and that sort of thing. But at that time, remember, there was no, you know, internet or world rankings yeah, yeah. to look up or see. So um, I was just having fun playing tennis and play the tournaments when I could uh, and didn't never really considered traveling internationally at all when I was a junior. No, it's, it's, it's another interesting one. We had we had Ian Barclay. I don't know if you knew Ian when oh, you were Of course, younger. yeah. So Barkers yeah. was actually my coach for, for a few years uh, when he came over to England. And he, I had him on the podcast too. He's just what, what a brilliant entertainment he was. But he talks a lot about Pat Cash and how kind of that group of players who obviously a few years older than you, he felt he had to take them to Europe to, to get them to just understand the game to another level, you know, that maybe they hadn't understood, but that was almost like the first time that people had done it. But, but then we've had John Millman on, we've had it, we've had a few Aussies on. It's such a massive commitment because you, you're buying that ticket to go to Europe 
you ain't coming back probably for three or four months, you know, and I think that's sometimes people in Europe and the States don't quite understand the commitment coming from a country like Australia. Absolutely. The travel is, is an obstacle and, and I'm with Ian on that one. I, I think that, you know, you can be, if you're a really strong player in Australia, um, you, you get the impression that, Oh, Hey, I've made it or I'm really good. And I, I think that the juniors in Australia need to get that international experience um, at some point um, because they need to be exposed to what the level is overseas that, you know, the different surfaces um, and see what else is out there. You know, I think we've had quite a lot of Australian junior players do really well in the Australian open, yep. um, you know, make a final or win it. Um, and not too many of them have gone on to be, you know, really successful tennis players, sort of top 50, top 25 level. Um, and I, I wonder whether that's, whether they get this sort of fake sense of, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm one of the best juniors in the world because I did well at the Australian Open. Um, you know, not all the internationals go to the Australian Open. Yeah. Um, and so I do think it's important for the Australian juniors to get overseas and, and expose themselves to all the different countries because I do feel that they're good enough, talented enough, uh, and they will rise their level yeah. to that occasion if they're exposed to it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And to just, again, pull you back a little bit, you you scooted over it a little bit, but your, both your parents were Swedish? That's right, yeah. They were both Swedish, um, and they moved to Australia before I was born. So I was yeah. born in Australia and, and raised there, yep. And this the, this cousin that was mentioned is Nicholas Culty, I believe, So, who mm-hmm. my memory of him was a Davis Cup match. Didn't he have an epic five-set match that he won to win the Davis Cup or, or something? Yeah, absolutely, lines? yeah. He, uh, Stefan Edberg got injured um, in the first, on the first day, and so they had to choose someone to play on the fifth day, on, oh, sorry, on the third day, the fifth rubber, and it was a final in, in Sweden against France. That's right. And uh, Nicholas was, was chosen um, to play the, the fifth rubber wow. to see if he could win it in Stefan Edberg's last Davis Cup last year playing. And, uh, and he had three match points at, I think, maybe eight, seven in the fifth and love 40. Um, and wasn't able to finish it in the end. He ended up losing, I think, 10-8 in the fifth or 12-10 in the fifth. Um, and he says he, you know, I've, uh, I've asked him about it and he says he still wakes up thinking about that sometimes. Um, but just, you know, the opportunity to be in that situation and, and have that experience, I think, would, would be unbelievable. But certainly not getting the, uh, the win at the end of the day has got to hurt him, I think. Mm, absolutely. So how old yeah. were you when that happened? Uh, let's see. I was probably, uh, I was probably around 20 or in my early 20s. Okay. Okay. Oh no, no, actually, no, I would have been in my late teens. I would have been in my late teens. So not out yet sort of playing. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I followed his career obviously very closely and it was a shame because when he was finishing, he was playing a lot of doubles and was a very good doubles player. And we talked about maybe playing because as I was sort of coming up, um, he retired right when I came up and I go, couldn't you hang in there a couple more years and play yeah, with yeah. me, you know, and help, help me out. But, Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, we, we, we joke. I mean, his career was way more successful than mine, but uh, I certainly let him know that I got a grand slam and, and he lost three finals. So <laughs> He lost three finals, did he? Yeah, he did. Yeah. Did he? <laughs> but it's on, but what a stop, because that as well, like it's, I, I certainly did it as a player. I, I definitely set a ceiling 
you know, I think I think we're all guilty of it as as human beings at time that we set these ceilings and you know if we don't quite know what what is out there and what is possible and I know you mentioned it at the start of the podcast but is your reflection that that was a big advantage for you to have someone who almost kind of led the path for you in such kind of close proximity to to you and your family? Yeah it wasn't something that I thought about at the time but it is something I reflect upon now um, you know when I'm older and finished and I think you know what that was I think that was that was pretty important that I had someone in my family that had had been very successful at the highest level it was kind of almost that yeah well you know maybe, maybe I can do it I think it was an in, uh, sort of a subconscious encouragement mm -hmm. so yeah I do, I do think it did help. And then what about coaches? I think, again, one of the things I've loved having people on the podcast, they can, they tend to be able to pinpoint who their first coach was, the, the influence that that coach had had, and some of the things that then, not just in tennis, but also in life kind of bring to them. Who were, who were your first coaches and what did they mean to you? Yeah, I mean, very, very young when I started was a guy by the name of Bill Sale, who my dad still talks to and, and, and is a really good guy. And he just... I remember I just had so much fun playing tennis. So he, he introduced me to the game. And then sort of my main coach through juniors was a, a guy by the name of Greg Duns, who's an outstanding coach uh, in Australia, still does a little bit of coaching. But he kind of taught me my technique, uh, you know, tactics, strategy, uh, competitiveness. Uh, he was big on, you know, competing well. And so he sort of lay, laid, laid the foundation um, of my whole tennis game. Um, so he was incredibly important in that way. Um, we, I still <laughs> kind of joke with him. I say, oh, why didn't you get my elbow away from my body on my forehand? You know, you just, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and I, you know, kind of give him a hard time how he didn't do better with my forehand. And, you know, he would come back with, well, if you had any fast twitch muscle fibers <laughs> in your body, you'd be able to hit a big forehand. So we kind of joke about that. Yeah. But then I think someone who had the biggest impact on me was, was Peter Lumsden. Um, and I sort of met him around in my late teens, 17, and I was kind of in a transition. I was, uh, uh, around that age, I was, I was acting like a bit of an idiot and, uh, you know, being a rebellious teenager, like I guess a lot of us were. Um, and he sort of showed a bit of belief in me at that time and started working with me for free. Um, never charged me anything. Um, and he was doing a, a, a sort of a high performance sports science course at the time. So he used to you know, put heart rate monitors on me and do all these sort of things. But he was incredibly important. And, and he was the one who sort of coaxed me to go back to school, finish my high school, and then encouraged me to go to college and utilize that pathway and those facilities to see where I could get to. Um, and I've certainly told him and I've gone on record before saying that if I didn't meet Peter and have him as a mentor, friend and coach in my life, then I, I never... I never ever would have played professional tennis. So um, that's that's how much impact a, a coach can have. And I know that from personal experience. Absolutely. And, and it's that like, it's that honest conversation as well, isn't it? It's that, that ability to just kind of take the interest or, or have the care for for the person to to then almost the, the, the biggest thing that you can ever give to any person is giving your honest feedback and, and letting them know okay, this is the right route for you. I, I, kind, I kind of promise you on that rather than just, just finding your own way. So before that, was college even an option for you in the States? No, it wasn't. It wasn't something I knew about or really, you know, again, there wasn't 
there wasn't a, there were, we didn't have the recruiting agencies. The internet was, you know, very new. Um, and so I certainly wasn't on the computer at all. Um, so I didn't know much about it. Uh, and then in the year that I went back to, uh, yeah, I, basically I finished year 11, which is my second last year of high school. And then uh, I decided I didn't want to go to year 12 and I wanted to uh, just muck about and play tennis. So I didn't. And I had two years out. And in that second year um, was when, you know, Lamo Peter Lumsden was, was telling me, hey, you know, I think you should go back to school and try the college route. And that's really, and f- straight away, I was like, nah, I'm not doing that. Yeah, yeah. But then, you know, over time, it just sort of gets in and then you realize that this is a pretty good, a pretty good route for me and go back and, you know, get an education while you're continuing your tennis. So it wasn't on the radar until then. Uh, and then one of my best friends who I played with in Melbourne was at Auburn University and, and he sort of gave me the in um, and told the coach about me. Okay. And, you know, since then, Eric Shaw, who's the coach, who was the coach at Auburn, then he, he's told me, he said, you're the biggest risk I ever took with a recruit. Right, okay. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you, you were out of juniors. You had no junior results. There was nothing on ITF. There were, you know, all I was relying on was your friend who was telling me that you were about the same level as him. And so it was a big punt to, you know, bring you in on, on pretty good scholarship at that point. So, and yeah, who, that's how it went. Who was your friend? Who was it? Lee, Lee Pearson. Okay, I remember that name. I think you were, it's a very similar story to me going to college. I, I had the same thing. Ian Barclay got me on track. I'd left school. I went back to school to to retake, you know, and again, I'll, I'll always be massively appreciative of Ian doing that. And in in college, how, how was that experience? Oh, it was fantastic. I mean, it was a blast. I mean, you know, I, I was so fortunate to go to a pretty good sec school and play in a really good conference because at that time i didn't know where i was going what what it was like i mean had no knowledge of any of anything um and so to show up and have you know be given equipment and travel everywhere and clothes and restrings for free and and coaching every day and team practices and you know like-minded people around who, who are trying to play and get better and then to just be a part of a team was so much fun um, and then obviously everything else that the university has to offer. I mean, it's great fun socially and meeting everyone. And I certainly did that. Um, but I also had it in the back of my mind that I, I really love tennis and I wanted to be as good as I could. And I wanted to play after college. So, um, you know, I kept that in mind uh, and, and I worked hard at practice and I did extra practices and I asked for individuals and I, I kept pushing myself and the coaches to help me to get better. So I was, yeah, I, I felt like I had the best of both worlds because it was, it was great fun and it was great tennis. So yeah. it, was, it was fantastic, yeah. There's actually, there's a story just jumped into my head as well, talking about an Australia, someone coming from Australia on a recommendation. My first year in college, we had a player that was supposed to come to us, a, a, a guy called Victor Romero, who was very good actually. But um, he ended up going to a rival university. I won't name the whole thing about it, but it happened to be Victor Romero's coach. All of a sudden, became the assistant coach as well at this at this university. So we were kind of jumping around. Our coach was jumping around, and he did the same thing. I guess it's like dipping into the transfer market, like they were doing the Premier League. And mm-hmm. we we had an Aussie in on his on his CV resume. It said beat Leighton Hewitt. 
So it was like brilliant. Leighton Hewitt's just <laughs> Leighton Hewitt's just beating Andre Agassi, you know, in the final of uh, Brisbane or somewhere. So I mean, this kid must be really good. Now he's he's a good friend of mine actually, and he's still he's still in America. Um, again, I won't go into the name, but by his own admission, when he turned up, his level probably wasn't quite up to what we were expecting. He didn't make the lineup. You know, he ended up being a valuable member of the team for four years, but never really played any matches. But it's amazing how things have now advanced, you know, that those sort of things were happening 20 years ago. And now you'll know every last detail about every player. It's incredible, really. Yeah, no, there's so many more uh, resources to dip into now than there were back then, for sure. Not to mention UTRs and, you know, all of those. What's your what's your opinion on that, the whole UTR side of things and how how that seems to have become um, a bit of a minefield as well when, when players getting a bit obsessed with them? I mean, I love the idea of UTR. I think it's great that we get everyone on the same ranking list. So from that perspective, I, I think it's a great idea and I think it's a good thing. And I think playing, you know, up and down from UTR levels is good, but... The flip side of that is that it's created more and more anxiety in the players. Um, and that is a really negative thing. And I think social media has done that in general. And it's one of the challenges now that coaches and players have. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily UTR's fault that they've come up with this ranking system and they're trying to rank everyone in the world on the same ranking. I think that's fantastic. I think it's valuable. Yeah. Um, but we, as a, you know, as, as parents, coaches, players are getting too caught up in what that number is and how to protect it or how to improve it or a way around it. And so, and that is, that to me is a, is a real negative and a challenge. Yep. So I'm a parent. I've been told by a recruitment company that my child needs to be an 11.5 UTR in order to get the scholarship that I desire. I go to you as the coach of the coach of my my child and I tell you this how do you manage that as a coach uh yeah I mean I, I tell them I can't guarantee any number that your child's going to get to but what I can say is that if I work with your child and they and and, and we can develop a rapport where they're willing to work they're going to get better um and I can't t tell you that they're going to be at that UTR by that time um, but I do know over time, if your child wants to work um, and, and we can get that good report, that relationship going as a coach and player, then I know they're going to improve. And I can't, but I can't guarantee or tell you when, how quickly or how far they're going to go. So I, there are no guarantees. And how are you going to show me that my child's improved? Well, I will, I will uh, I'll use video, I'll use statistics, um, and over time it will show with results. But I'm not focusing on those results. I'm not focusing on that number. I'm focusing on um, the improvement in, in that child. And it could be in their competitiveness. It could be in their technique. Uh, if they're a young player, it's probably going to be around all of those things because, you know, I love to, I love to see improvement as a holistic um process um and not just one thing or another thing and Does that make you, sense is that fair it no it's absolutely fair and it's it's spot on and it's it's very very much aligned with with my philosophies the academy's philosophies and and i guess just if i play the parental devil's advocate i think that's where us as coaches 
we we need to what i don't like is when coaches just say just trust me just trust me you know and it's like i think as a, as a, as a coaching team and as professionals in our business i think we we need to be able to provide more than that you know it's not we need to earn that trust and we being able to show it in an ob objective way other than just results, because obviously results is always going to be an objective measure that's going to that's going to showcase how how things are developing in terms of the tennis. How, can you give us examples of how you use video analysis, how you use data analysis in order to not necessarily justify to parents, but in in terms of actually improving players? Sure. Yeah, um, I'll give you two examples. One technically, um, so. I've gotten very into the serve and the technique behind the serve. And I've really followed Dr. Mark Kovacs and, yeah. and his model of uh, the eight stage model of improving yeah. serves. And so now I capture serves right at the beginning when I start playing, when I start with a player, you know, from the back, from the side, I will uh, break it into those eight stages and, and I'll know where I need to focus on to improve that serve. And then in, you know, two or three months, I'll take the serve again. And then I'll put them side by side and, you know, I'll show, okay, this has gotten better. This hasn't gotten better, um, et cetera, et cetera. And if you're at the highest level, you can probably look at some data to go along with that, like serve speed, average serve speed, if they're on Hawkeye courts, or if, if you have that availability, if they're at the very top level. So technically that's a way that you can do it. And you can do that with slice backhands or forehands or backhands, whatever it may be. Um, and then another thing that I've done when I was at the USTA was, you know, I get matches tagged. So I'll get a group of eight or 10 matches tagged from my player. I'll have a look, I'll, I'll look through all the statistics um, and I'll, I'll usually break it up into serving, returning and rallying. And so, and then I'll try and pinpoint where they're, where they're strong, where they're weak, what's working, what isn't working. Um, and, you know, so an example might be, uh, returns in play off a first serve and off a second serve and you can go into as much detail as you want you could do forehands you can do backhands you could you know all of that and i'll say oh well off the first serve you're making 71 percent of returns and then i'll go look at the wta tour averages and you know the average number of first serve returns in play is 83 percent and i'll say oh there's a pretty big differential yeah. um that's something that we can focus on in in practice over the next few months and then I'll tag another eight or 10 matches. And then I'll look at those stats to see where they're improving. Now you have to be mindful with that because maybe the group of opponents is different compared to the first group. And so there's all these little intricacies yeah. with, with doing that. Um, but that, those are ways that you can, you know, without question, show improvement um, and yeah. show changes or in, in patterns and, and see what's happening. So that's using that's using stats to your advantage. And then obviously I think we'll probably talk more about this, but linking it to video yeah. and showing the player visually, this is what was happening before. This is what is happening now, rather than just a number on a paper. I think that's pretty important. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, no, I mean, we're, we, we, we've jumped into this topic now and I think it's such a, it's such a topical topic as, as such right now in, in, in the game, because I guess what we're seeing now is we're seeing probably any coach over the age of 50 um, in general is, is probably a little bit old school. And we've had some, again, some fantastic coaches on the podcast that are almost saying, well, it's a bit late for us to start 
trying to go down thinking in this statistics and it's um, I'm not a computer coach. I'm not a computer coach. I, I, I've got good eyes. I know what I see. And then I think we're going to have the next generation of coaches and I, and I and I think the forward-thinking coaches that are going well. Actually, this is a this is a support system that is is amazing. Tennis is behind in 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 this way of working compared to other sports. But the real art, I think, is the ability to double-click in. <laughs> so so like you're saying, you know, you're looking at that, but then it could be that aggregate could be taken over the a, a different set of results or an, an easy match or a different game style. In terms of the future of this, how how does this become more manageable for coaches to use that doesn't take up so much time, I guess, is, is one, what I'd like to get to. If you're working for the USDA, I would imagine you've got people that are, that are tagging it for you and maybe presenting something that's a bit more digestible to you. But how does just a run-of-the-mill coach, like myself, working in an academy use statistics and video without it taking up three, four hours per match? Yeah, no, it's a great question and certainly one that I uh, came across when I coached in college um, because there you're taking six matches of video um, and you might have another match in two days. I mean, how are you going to look at six matches of video, tag it, maybe cut it, find things? It's, it's too comprehensive. So I think you have to utilise a tagging service um, now and there are you know there's there's several out there now and if I may um, one that I would recommend is is, is breakpointtennisanalytics.com I think they do a fantastic job um, and they can they can customize what you see uh, and I think that's a when you're a coach and you haven't looked at this stuff before and you get this report of statistics and you see all this information, it kind of blows your mind. You don't know where to look first or what, what's important or, and you don't understand how to digest it. So you might actually pay to get these matches tagged and then you get it back and it's just so disorganized that you don't know where to look. Yeah. Um, so my recommendation is to have somebody else do that service for you, do the tagging for you and then um, ask them and, and you know, this company will do that. Can you take me through this? Yep. What, where, where do I find this? How, you know, you got to understand what you're looking at. Yep. Um, and then obviously when you're the coach of the player, you can have, all right, I, I got a feeling this player misses a lot more forehand returns and backhand returns. And that's something that you can ask and then figure out where do I drill down in that area? Um, but uh, yeah. So yeah, your original question was how, how to get it. And I'm saying, don't try and do to do the tagging and look at it all yourself, I think is too comprehensive and takes yeah. so much time. Use a service, pay the money and you'll be better off for it. You will lose money because you're paying a little bit of money, but you gain knowledge uh, and you'll get the respect of your player and your player's parents. And, and, and to me, to me, I think that coaches now should be utilizing analytics and using video. If you want to use it a tiny bit of the time, that's okay. Yeah. If you want to use it a lot, that's what you do. Um, but I do believe, you know, I, it's in, like what you said. And I remember you had the, the Swedish coach on Magnus Tiedemann, who yeah. I know and, and like, and I think he's an unbelievable coach. And I speak to him sometimes as well. And, and he was saying, oh, I don't really use it. Uh, and and I, I would tell him as well. I'd say, oh, I think you're missing out. I, I'd love yeah. to show you a couple of things about your player. Um, yeah. But, it, you know, it's his prerogative. He doesn't have to do it if he doesn't want to. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
but I do think it's going to be utilized. Um, and it's, but it's not everything. It's a tool, the yeah. same as hydration and recovery and meditation. They're a tool to, you know, make the athlete better and improve upon them. And so, so is analytics. So use that tool to your advantage. And what do you mean by <clears throat> data being backed up by video? Uh, it's just in, instead of looking, you know, specifically just at a number and taking that on face value, um, it's then taking that number and going, oh, that's surprising or that's interesting. And then, and then, you know, these tagging services they offer. So you can, it'll say net appearances, um, you know, 25, net appearances, one, 15. Um, and then you can actually click on those things in the in in a report on on the internet, and that will take you to the points where the net appearances that you won and lost. And so then you've got to look at those net appearances and go, okay, I how did I win those net appearances? So instead yeah. of saying I won sixty five percent of point of net appearances, oh wow, I, I got to come to the net all the time. You got to look at why you won those net appearances, and it might be because you'd set up the point with your baseline, and you got a short ball, and the point was basically over when you arrived at the net. Oh, yeah. So you have to interpret the data, not just take it on face value, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Yeah. And at this point, when you mention net appearances, I I have to go to the criteria set out on that because I think you listened to the podcast with Craig O'Shaughnessy and you know I tip my hat to Craig has done a has done a fantastic job has seen a real niche in the market has gone and has gone and, and, and done it you know done what he's done but one of the things that I guess came out of my podcast with him was was my I suppose lack of understanding my my almost a little bit kind of a little bit infuriated that this this whole sixty five percent of net appearances are, are won the whole time, and and I felt I felt I couldn't get a handle on what the actual criteria. How are we judging what a what a, a net appearance is? And you you reached out to me very kindly and and kind of gave your thoughts on it. So can you share with the listeners your thoughts around that? Sure, I can. Uh, the I think it's really important to understand the definition um, yeah. of all stats. You know, you got to know what is the definition. And I'll I'll just go sideways a little bit here, Dan, before I answer your question. The the one to four rally length. So if I ask you, what does that entail? Can you tell me? Serve, serve, return, third ball, fourth ball. Okay, and is it each hit or is it the ball in the court? So the, my interpretation of that is if, if one person hits three shots, it's past that phase. If, they, if, that, if that third shot goes in the court. Yeah, and that's exactly why I say understand the definition because yeah. currently there are two definitions out there. Um, one, the tagging service that we use through the, through the USTA um, and who, who I've had the most experience with they count one to four as four hits. So just the way you said it, if there's a fifth hit that goes into the five to eight rally length, but IBM who do a lot of the pro tour stuff, ATP tour and Craig O'Shaughnessy, um, their definition is a little bit different. If you hit the ball, the, if the fifth shot is hit, um, but it's out, that still belongs in the one to four rally length. 
So now within the same industry, we have two different definitions. So you can get a set of data from the people we use at USTA, and that is going to look different to the set of data that IBM use. Yes. And that's something that not a lot of people know or understand, but that's a pretty big difference, Dan. I mean, if, you, if you're the server and you hit your plus one and then you hit another shot, but you miss it, now all of a sudden that's in the one to four rally length. Well, I reckon that happens more than once in a while. Um, so that's understanding the definition. Anyway, getting back to your net appearances, for me, um, net appearances are subjective. And so they're tagged that way. Um, and so when they're tagged, a lot of the times they're tagged by a player approaching or getting near the net. And that can sometimes mean three quarter court. So moving forward. So when I, when I would look at net appearances tagged, I would see so many net appearances tagged that I personally would not um, consider a net appearance because there's been no pressure from the net. So that's my definition and that's my opinion. Um, But to me, I'll give you an example. If we're playing each other, and you hit a drop shot and you hit a bad drop shot, you mess it up. Um, Very possible. And I, run in, <laughs> and I run in and I just get there in plenty of time and, 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 I, and I smash a forehand away. Well, what the person on the side of the court does is he looks at where I am and he says, oh, that guy's close to the net. That's a net appearance. But I haven't hit a volley. I haven't approached. And the person isn't knowing that I'm at the net and feels more pressure to hit a, in, into a smaller space on the court. So for me, that the net has no influence on that point. And so, but that is often tagged as a net appearance. And I think that's one of the reasons why we see net appearances one so high. Um, And I I don't, personally, I don't think that stat is particularly accurate um, because it's so subjective. Um, And so the definitions are different. And I, that's my, my definition is there has to be pressure from the net um, for it to be a net appearance. But someone else's definition is, oh, you just have to be approaching the net or near the net for a net appearance. So I'm not saying one is better than the other one, but it is tagged that way. And I think that's why that winning percentage is often so high. Because if I push you around the court with my forehand and you eventually just barely get to it and pop it over and then I put my forehand away, to me, that's a point one at the baseline, not a point one at the net because I haven't volleyed it and I haven't approached. So anyway, again, that's why we link the data with the video. Yeah, it just shows you more. Yep. Well, thanks for articulating that so well. You know, that's because that was that was my thing. The thing that was just in my head that I just I wasn't having. I just wasn't having it in my head. Was Novak Djokovic is only winning forty six percent or forty seven percent of baseline points in his in his career, yet all of these other players are winning 65% of net points in their career. And I'm sorry, that's, it's not true in, 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 in the criteria that as, as tennis players that we would, that we would have in place, the way that we would define what a baseline point is, is and the way that we would define what a net point was. And I think that was where my sort of frustrations were coming out that I wasn't getting, firstly, I wasn't even getting a clear definition. I was struggling to get anyone to give me what the clear definition is of how they are tagged which you've clarified very well. And then secondly, exactly like you say, that that is subjective. <laughs> and and there'll be different people that will have that will have different definitions. And where does the future of data analysis and video analysis go, do you think? Well, I think it's I mean, well, I I know, I know 
for a fact that it's heading towards artificial intelligence. Okay. I mean, artificial intelligence is going to be able to tag matches for us um, and they're going to be able to do it in real time or in very quick time. So now the services that run, you get a mat, you video a match, you, you know, upload it to your computer, then you send it off to the taggers, taggers, they take it, then they manually tag the match and then you get it back. And if you're not, you know, Roger Federer, um, it's probably going to take a while to get that back. Yep. You know, the same as what we experienced in, in college or when I coached in college, whereas the future is, um, you know, AI is going to tag it live as it happens and the, the stats are going to be available straight away even during the match the coach may be sitting there with an ipad on the side of the on the side of the court knowing um all all the statistics and and what's happening um in the match in, in real time so that's that's certainly where it's headed and I'd, I'd be surprised if we weren't there in the next three years something like that and when you were playing and as a grand slam champion as a wimbledon champion as, as, as a world-class doubles player was that something that you wanted as a player? Did you crave to get statistics? Because even back in your day or our day, it was available in some form. And did you used to look into that when you were playing? Yeah, you know, I'd be interested to know how much, I mean, certainly, certainly through the end of the 2000s, there started to be more stats on, you know, ATP.com and, and different things like that. But there was very little around doubles. Uh, and there, you know, there was a lot more in singles, not in doubles. And so there wasn't much there for me. Um, I wasn't looking for it. Um, and it just, there wasn't much there. Now, when I got into coaching, I remember, you know, at Wimbledon, I, you know, I coached a, a girls team there several years and all of a sudden there was a bunch of stats from the matches and the matches from the opponents. And so I'd be sitting in that you know, room up there, looking at where they were serving on first points and break points and things like that, trying to gain an advantage. So it's certainly something I've always been interested in. Um, but when I played, there wasn't much around in the doubles. So I, I didn't really utilize it. And I really had to rely on, on kind of my instincts and my eye and what I was reading or, or comprehending was happening. I think that's where Louis Kaya has been such an unbelievable doubles coach for, for so long, because when I stopped playing in 2005, I thought if Stephen Huss can win Wimbledon, then I'm done. You know, I'm out of here. <laughs> it was, that should have encouraged you to keep going. Should, what are you talking it, about? It, it should have. <laughs> yeah, but literally, I, I stopped probably, yeah, two or three months after. It was it was not connected. It was not connected. But a, a couple of months after I stopped, Louis Kaya moved over to, to Britain. And... I, as I was coaching, I went and did like a couple of sessions, did a couple of sessions with him and Jamie, a couple of sessions with him and a couple of other players. And I was like, and I was a decent doubles player, but I was like, I didn't have a clue. I didn't have a clue about the things he was telling me. You know, there's like, you know, we took a set off the Bryans in 2005, actually, you know, and I know you ended up playing them in the final. Um, could have been us, but yeah, but er earlier on, but, I was I was standing in the wrong place. I, I I didn't really. It was exactly what you said. You used a word there, instinct. It was so instinctive. Whereas I see now, if we talk about the British double system now, I mean Salisbury's won Australian Open this year from nowhere, really. You know, obviously Jamie's had the career he's had. The Skopskis, Fleming. You know, there's so many. Dom Inglot. 
that he's done, and he's done it in a very, it's a very stat-driven way, territorial way, and it's almost like he was 10 years ahead of the time. I don't know if you felt that when you were playing against, I guess, the Louis Kaya-type teams when you when you were on the tour. Well, yeah, I'm I'm very familiar with uh, with Louis because I had stints um, playing with James Auckland for quite a yeah. while, and also I played a lot with Ross Hutchins. So yeah. I actually I spent quite a lot of time with and around Louis, um, and yeah. you know he's a fantastic doubles coach, fantastic yeah. coach in general, um, but he really started to specialize in doubles, and 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 absolutely, I mean his is a in my opinion, his is a, is more of a system than an instinctual way to play. Yeah. Um, you know, because he tells you exactly where you need to be standing, how you cover the most territory. And then not only that, but when you get a forehand volley, this is where you volley it based on where the serve was. And then you get a backhand volley. Where's the space? Well, it's over there. That's where you volley it. So very sort of refined system that he used and he's proved it to be hundred percent correct because he's had so much success with so many different types of players. And I think that you'll agree. Um, I, I don't know Salisbury at all. I never saw him, but I mean, a lot of these guys went further than they probably expected that they were going to go. Uh, and Jamie's turned into, you know, number one in the world and an absolutely incredible um, career, which I wouldn't have picked at the beginning of his career. Yeah. Um, no disrespect at all. I mean, he's an awesome player, but I mean, Louis has helped those guys. Yeah. I think one of the reasons Jamie was able to get to one as well is because he was also an instinctual player. Yeah. He, he also understood the game really, really well and read things and picked up on cues. And so when you add that into the amazing system that Louis had, it, it makes for an even better player. Yeah. Does that make sense, Dan? Yeah, no, it makes complete sense, yeah. And in terms of, yeah. um, I know, because we had Jamie on the podcast as well, and he talks a lot about how him and Andy, when they were younger, they they played so much, so many games, so many constantly, like, tactical battles, even if it's hitting balloons in the house. So they both talked about they felt even at a young age, that they saw the game and felt the game more than the people that they came across. And and I know that you were very much, you had a really smart understanding of the game. You know, I always thought when I watched you, you were a little bit like the quarterback who just, you could just kind of just watch what was happening and, you know, be able to almost depict the plays. Where, where do you think that came from? Is Was that learnt or is that just happening in your natural environment? Uh yeah, it's a it's a million dollar question, isn't it? Um, it it certainly comes from the game sense and the game playing. I mean, I I remember uh, so many of my coaching sessions when I was younger with with Greg Duns were, you know, draw a line down the middle of the court and play cross court, one at the net, one at the back. Or, you know, I used to play mini tennis with our friends all the time. You know, yeah. cross court down the line, doubles is in, doubles is out. So we we're always playing games, and I, that that and that has to help you with that game sense and that understanding of yeah. what's happening out there. Um, and, and I'm sure that it, that it did. And that was so beneficial. And I think it's a really good point and it's something that we need to remember. And I need to, I remind myself as a coach now is that tennis is still a game to be played. It's mm -hmm. not a ball to be hit. Yeah. And I think that, and, and I would say, I think this country, USA, where I live and, and I love being here and I love working here. Um, there are too many players in this country that are too concerned with hitting 
and want to be great hitters and have great technique. Um, and we need to have more players um, yeah. in this country for them to be, you know, even more successful. Uh, I think that's a, you know, the best players are, are great players, not only good hitters. Um, so, yeah, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you exactly where I came from, but it's a sense. And, and certainly all those games early on have to contribute to that, but I got to think there's a bit of natural stuff in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you, no, I'm about to say something that I'm, I'm certainly not trying to um, trying to jump on you here, but you, in a, in a in a power sport where that that ball is absolutely flying as your doubles partner Wesley Moody, who when you won Wimbledon obviously served served so big, you were never known for to have a massive serve. You were never known to have a massive forehand. But your ability to put the ball in the right place and to move to the right place was incredible. A bit like, a, a, I guess, a Martina Hingis on, on the female side, you know, and, and the fact that you were able to do that with all of these power hitters, you know, really does put you in a, in a place where you're quite unique and I know there has been players over the years that have done that but I just think it's quite interesting how how you were able to conquer it you you won Wimbledon <laughs> you know you were able to conquer this game you know and, uh, and 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 I know that you're very humble in that but ultimately how you did it uh, fascinates me really yeah and you, you said it's a power game but I think it's become that uh, and I think it you know throughout my career it transcended through my career when I was when I was beginning you know the end of my uh, the start of my career was the end of the Woody's career and I think the Woody's in doubles were an unbelievably skillful team you know with great touch and understanding um and and then you know as I left the sport the Bryans are the best team um you know probably of all time and they're of course they have skill um but they were more about power and intimidation than they were um, about guile and skill and touch. And so I think it's changed over the sort of the course of my career. And, you know, for a while that skill and that, you know, it was helped me tremendously. Um, but by the end, the power was almost too much and okay. overcoming me. And you're certainly hundred percent correct. I didn't have the power and you're saying I was able to conquer it. Well, on that occasion I was, but I mean, on a lot of occasions I wasn't. Um, so I wasn't a consistently top player in the world in doubles, a very top player in the world in doubles. So it was only at times I was able to, uh, yeah. to kind of overcome it, but I'm, I'm certainly proud of the career, um, that I had and, and the way I, in which I did it, I, I had to do it that way because I didn't have the power and mm -hmm. the big serve and the big forehand. So, yeah. yeah. But even if we jump into, into the Wimbledon 2005 now, obviously you came through qualifying you you then and we'll get back to this in a minute to to Bupati Woodbridge but then last 16 Sir Mac and Friedel Czech guys I would imagine they were pretty big hitters the way that they they, they played the game the Czech guys tend to be pretty big hitters yeah more flat yeah more flat yeah. and more uh more a baseline team more a clay court team um but uh yeah certainly you know big ground strokes hard hitters but more flat then yep. Knowles and Lodra, you know, again. Yeah, there's a really, I mean, Knowles is a very skillful doubles player, um, you know, sort of in the same, 
well, I was in the same mould as him because he had a much stronger career than me. Uh, and then Lodra was a very good singles player, a big server, um, and, and a very good all-round player. I mean, good volleys and, and, and pretty good from the ground as well. Yep. I mean, these names, it's unbelievable. Eh? When you, you when you look back at that, it, time until like, then Bjorkman Murney in the semis. They were, they were one of the, you know, the best teams for sure um, for a few years there. A great blend of, um, you know, Max's power and Jonas's quickness. And I mean, his returns were were absolutely incredible. So uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, that was uh, that was probably the best match that we played. I think in the semis there, and I think we won seven six in the fourth, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. And then obviously the Bryans in the final. So what was it like to beat arguably the greatest ever? doubles team in the final to win it talk us through that experience well at that point they were pretty new uh, i think they'd coming off uh i think they'd made the last three two or three slam finals um and hadn't won yet um and obviously going into that final they were huge favorites against us and i didn't know them i mean i saw them in college very briefly but didn't play against them um and i didn't know them and, and i've told this before but Todd Woodbridge helped me a lot um, before that match because leading up to the final, every other match that we had to play, I sat and watched the match, um, you know, before we had, you know, to see who won. And I, and I took notes and, um, and, and sort of came up with a game plan of how we were going to beat them. And for the final, we actually played the semis both at the same time. So I wasn't able to do that, you know, with the Bryan. So I didn't know them. And I saw Todd Woodridge in the locker room um, after we'd won our semi. And, and I just sort of said to him, hey, do you know these guys? Is there anything you can help me with? And, and he, he said, sure. And he sat down and he just started calling them righty and lefty. He didn't call them Bob and Mike. He called them righty and lefty. And then he started going through how they played and what their tendencies were. And I grabbed a pen and a bit of paper and, and I just started writing everything down that he was saying. And, and it, it helps so much because for every other match, I had things written down. I'd send an email away to my coach in Australia with the plan of what I was going to do. And if I didn't get that from Todd and I didn't have any information, I would have gone in blind. And that would have been, I think, a lot more difficult um, to win that final without that information. Um, but the match itself, I mean, yeah, it was, it was, it was awesome. It was so fun to play the, the, you know, the crowd was, the place was full, which was fantastic. Um, and, uh, and, and I remember I served particularly well that day. Um, and Wes was, you know, hitting the ball clean and hard. And uh, I think there's one spot in the fourth set that I've talked about quite a lot was uh, we, we broke early in the fourth. And I think at 3-1, I was standing at the net and Wes was serving. And I just kind of, for the first time, I looked up and I looked around the stadium and I just said to myself, oh, you're going to win Wimbledon. And, and then all of a sudden I felt it right away. My whole body just completely tensed up and I got so tense and tight and nervous. And I, luckily I was, I was aware of it in that moment. Um, and then I just kind of, all right, look back down. And then I looked at the grass and I just reminded myself, I said, Stephen, you're playing doubles. You know how to play doubles, play doubles. And yeah. so I was able to bring my mind back, you know, yeah. into something helpful, but I, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that, 
if I wasn't able to do that in that moment, I mean, that would have been an enormous choke for me. So I would have needed a lot of help from, uh, from Wes to get through and, and actually win that. But luckily I was able to gather myself there. And, and then, uh, and then when I won my serve, I think to go four, two up, something like that. And I didn't, and I didn't have to serve again. I thought they're not breaking Wes. I mean, the way Wes serves. And then, you know, I was pretty good at cherry picking at the net and, doing that sort of stuff. I thought, you know, I was confident that we were going to win as soon as I held my last service game. So that was pretty cool. And, and during the tournament, because I guess we had a game and we had Freddie, Freddie Nielsen and, and Johnny Murray on, they were actually our first ever guests on the podcast. And I asked them yeah. this question because they, I guess they were wild cards into Wimbledon and obviously came out the blue to win it. And, and, and really, if we probably talk about over the last over the last 15 years, it's probably them and then yourself and Wes that both t- the teams that came out the blue, but also kind of had the tennis world behind you, you know, decent blokes, hardworking guys, people that, you know, people can, you know, really um, relate to. And you guys came through the qualifying, you know, so to have two, two matches in qualifying to then go on this run, was there any point during the tournament where almost the fun journey became, oh shit, we're now in the quarters of Wimbledon? Or did you did you have a moment like that or did you just kind of keep riding the wave? No, actually I didn't. Um, I had a really good routine uh, with what I was doing for dinner. I was eating at just three different places and basically rotating through them i remember i was watching the show 24 so i'd watch a couple of those episodes you know every night before i went to bed and then you know i I would watch the match of who we were going to play the winner of because basically because we quali we played on the tuesday that's quite often how it goes so we were around ahead so whoever we had to play next were playing the next day so i was able to go and watch take my notes make my plan i'd email my coach at home so i was in this really good routine um, of what I was doing and really focused on what I, what I could control, you know, which is pretty yeah. cool with your, with your podcast. Yeah. Uh, and there was a real big moment um, before the second round against Woodbridge and Bupati. When I went and watched them, they played uh, Graydon Oliver and Jared Palmer in the first round, which was a really tough first round for all four guys. And I just noticed that, uh, Palmer and Oliver, probably more Graydon Oliver because he was a bit younger, but they were so worried about what Woodbridge was doing that they were, they were, they were out of their own game <laughs> and they're trying to go around him and what's he doing? And that was a real sort of light bulb moment for me. And I just thought, you know what, if I lose to Woodbridge tomorrow, it's going to be because he beats me, not because I beat myself. Yeah. And I am going to volley cross court because I, I don't see him moving all that often when he's the returner's partner. I'm going to hit that volley cross court. I'm going to keep going there. Uh, and I'm not going to be, and, and he doesn't move as often as I think. So I'm going to hit my returns cross court. And if he moves and knocks him off and he starts dominating, okay, then he beats me. So it's kind of got back to, you know, what I could control. So anyway, I was in a really good sort of space with that. And, and, and then I think the only time after we won our semi was the first time that we were called to do press conference. Right. Okay. And right in the beginning, you know, I can't remember how many people were there. There weren't too many, but there were several. And I just kind of said, all right, I don't want to know how much money I've won and I don't want to know how many points I've got. Just don't say anything about that because yeah. I, I, didn't, I didn't want to hear it. I wasn't interested um, yeah. and I didn't want that to distract me from 
what was going to happen, you know, the next day in the tournament. Mm. So I was really in a, in a really good space, a really good zone um, throughout the whole tournament. And I was focused on one match at a time. I had my plan and, and I was able to, and we were able to execute so well. And is that something that you were able to take on in your career? That I suppose the importance of that routine or how, how easy is it to find a routine at a tournament like that? It, it isn't always easy. It really isn't. Um, and I would, I would expect that these days with all the social media and everything, it's even harder um, because it's, it's just available and there all the time. Um, and I think, you know, I had a conversation with, uh, with Julian Roger years later at the US Open and it was after him and Takao had won Wimbledon. And he sort of said to me, oh, you know, we just can't, we can't replicate what happened at Wimbledon. We're not, we're trying to get back to what we did there. And, and I told him, I said, hey, my experiences was don't, don't waste your time. Don't try and mm. make things the same as they were just because you won that big tournament. You know, you've got to bring it into the present and you've got to adapt and evolve and, and see what's working for you here. Um, and so many of those things that I did are, are really helpful and really good. But it just takes one distraction or one change mm -hmm. for that to be messed up. And if you're relying on that, you know, talking about the mental side, if you're relying on everything to be perfect, it's not going to be. Uh, yeah. and, and so you have to deal with that and, and adapt. So I think it is tough to find a routine. Um, but because every city is different, every tournament's different, when you play is different, yeah. there's so many things that change. So you have to be able to adapt. Yeah, no, absolutely. I always think as well, that's one of the reasons why the first round is often so difficult because nobody's really in that routine yet by the, by the first round, you know, and it's like one thing as even I get it now as a coach, the first day or two, I don't feel like I fully belong or own the tennis club or own the routine around the tennis club, whether it's, we're talking about futures level. We're talking about ITF junior level. One of the first things I'll try and do is, okay, where's the supermarket? You know, where's this, where's that? And, and, and if you can get there, and I guess it's a message for players that are listening a couple of days before, just to familiarize, just so you're in that place, where's the pharmacy? If I need a pharmacy, you know, where's the, what's the travel look like, you know, between the courts and, and the hotel, you know, just start to start to input because all top sports people talk about the importance of the routine, you know, and, and we've both experienced it. You've experienced it at the greatest tournament of all, you know, and what great things can happen when it does happen. But just trying to take care of some of those small things, I think, on day one and day two. And what people often find, I think, once you're past round one, you've now got a match routine. <laughs> so then so you've got something you can replicate. Whereas going into match one, you, you've got nothing to replicate. And I, and I do believe that's one of the reasons why players find round one such a difficult kind of barrier to get through. And they, they find it, there's a lot more emotion attached to round one. Yeah, I agree. And I think uh, another reason why um, we, we have challenges in round one is because we're, we're not Nadal and Federer and Serena. Um, and, yeah. you know, so often those guys are so much better um, than the players they're playing um, that, you know, they perhaps don't have to be at their best uh, in the beginning. But really what you're talking about there, Dan, is preparation, right? And, and preparation does 
does breed a little bit of confidence yeah. and it does it does help um, going into matches if you can prepare better and that's part of professionalism and in, in this day and age yeah. um, you know that's that's pretty much a prerequisite to do well absolutely and you, and we touched on there and I'm, I'm smiling because I keep hearing the terminologies that you're using which is the terminologies that we use at the academy because we're strongly connected through Anthony Ross who um, is an absolute legend and who, you know, from mentally tough tennis. And I know it's something, I think you were actually the first person to talk to me about it back at, I think it was Orange Ball or Eddie Her back a few years ago, I bumped into you. When you were playing first, is that a side of the game that you were, that you were clued into, the psychology, uh, worked with someone, or is that something that's come later as you've got into coaching? Uh, it was something that, I was clued into because as you so kindly pointed out earlier, I didn't have a lot of power. I didn't have yeah. a lot of game. So I had to rely on other things. Um, and I, you know, I, I prided myself particularly later in my career in that I was mentally pretty good. I was pretty even, I was pretty stable. Um, I didn't want to get beaten mentally or beat myself. Now I wasn't perfect far from it, but I knew that that was an element of, um, of, of having success at the highest level. And so I did put time into it. I didn't have a system, a blueprint that, you know, that Anthony does. And now that both of us have, have learned, um, but I certainly did realize its importance. I did use visualization, um, you know, both the night before and during matches. Uh, I did use breathing, um, you know, during matches, which, you know, Anthony would say maybe is in, in opposition to some of his ideas, which is, which is fun to talk about as well. Um, but I certainly was clued into the mental part of the game and knew how important it was. And I did feel it was an area where I could get an edge yep. um, in a lot of circumstances, certainly not all of them, but you know, so many of the times I walked on the court and they had an edge with the serve and the power. So I was yep. looking, where, where's my edge? Mm -hmm. Where can I get an edge? And, that was an area that I was, I was trying to get an edge. And how did you work on that when you were a player? Um, all right, well, I mean, I, I just, the first thing that comes to mind is I just resolved to be better. Um, yeah. I used to watch a lot of tennis. I used to watch a lot of opposition and I, and you could see when someone would crack or when someone would go away or when, you know, even though the score wasn't over, the match was over because yeah. of, how they were acting or, or what was happening on the court. And I just resolved to be, okay, I'm, I, I don't want to be like that. I, I want to mm -hmm. be better than that. And, and I think through my awareness of those situations and what was happening, um, I was able to catch myself and improve at it um, in that way. Uh, and certainly, I mean, choking is a big part, is a big part of any sport, I think. And, it, and it's a really, admirable concept to have for someone to have to choke because it means you care so much and, and I choked more times than I can remember um, but in the beginning of my career I didn't I didn't realize why I was choking or I didn't I wasn't aware that I was choking yeah. and then later in my career I was able to be like okay you're choking at the moment what you know what can I do to remedy this where yeah. else can I put my attention to help it um, and I used Anthony's term then, but when I was playing, I, I didn't know it. So I didn't, I didn't use it then, yes. but, uh, yeah, it was, it was through that, it was through that awareness. It was through watching, it was through learning and it was through reflecting. Because you used, I guess, when we're, when we're coaching players, 
youngsters and it might be, okay, now you're serving for Wimbledon. You know, it's like you're kind of almost getting them to imagine the moment, you know, this, this, this big moment. And you talked about it. Okay. You felt like you were serving for Wimbledon because if you held, ah, well, Wesley's going to hold the next game. And, and you use the terminology that you, you were aware that you were starting to, to think in this way. And then you put your attention, you look down onto the grass to, to, to make yourself feel more present, I guess. And then, and then you put your attention some, somewhere that's going to be a little bit more helpful. Johnny Murray, I love, I, I, it's such an honor and privilege for me to get to speak to you guys that have been in this, 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 Wimbledon final. There's not nothing bigger in my opinion. And Johnny Murray serving for a 5-4 in the fifth set. Johnny had, had had a lot of, in our terminology, a lot of passengers over the years that he'd he'd struggled to to tolerate. You know, he'd had a he'd had a lot of moments of choking, a lot of moments of then kind of losing it a little bit. And he talks about how all he focused on, he recognized the moment, he was aware of how he was feeling. So he just thought you've served beautifully the whole of Wimbledon by keeping your left arm up. And he just said, just focus on that left arm, get your left arm up, get your left arm up. And then he made five out of six first serves serving at five, four and five, four in the fifth set. So I guess people have been, you guys have, that were on the tour for a long time have obviously found these ways of doing it. How how have you then advanced it? And I guess to talk a little bit about your relationship with Anthony and, and mentally tough tennis, how's that influenced your philosophies now as a tennis coach? Yes, I um, when I when I first got into coaching, uh, I mean one of the one of the first things I saw very quickly was okay, a lot of the players I work with aren't mentally tough enough. They're not resilient enough. Um, you know, they go to pieces too early, they get frustrated, um, they get hopeless. And, and I was just kind of like, all right, well, I know what mental toughness is. I know how I felt and I know that I got better at it and how I got better at it. But it was kind of like, well, how do I teach it? And I tried to do it through story and through, you know, telling them, but I really didn't have a blueprint, a way to do it. And that's where, you know, Anthony Ross and his mentally tough tennis techniques came into play and so I spent a lot of time with Anthony um, you know both you know next to him and on the phone and talking and, and chatting through different scenarios and and I came to love his approach um, and you know since since that time I'm now implementing um, you know his ways really with the players uh, so and now I feel quite confident that I can teach it whereas in the beginning when I was coaching I was kind of like I know what it is, but how do I teach it? How do I develop it in the players? And now through his blueprint, um, I do feel confident that I can teach it. And I think the, the fact that I've had those experiences and gone through them myself at the highest level certainly helps me relate to the players yeah. um, and, and help them. So that's been a huge help into teaching um, players. So, yeah. What would you do? For the listeners who, if you haven't listened, again, Anthony Ross is on the podcast, so go back. It's episode 20-something, I think, um, to get to get a little bit more detail. It's well worth it's listening to. It's life lessons as well. But 
for those that are listening or too lazy to do that or thinking, yeah, right, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to this one and that's, that's enough of your voice, Keenan, you know, get what, what two or three quick tips could you give them in line with the blueprint that, that Anthony has with mentally tough tennis? Well, I think the, the biggest difference towards sort of the traditional psychological approaches that most people have had, and this is what I love about it probably the most, is that in traditional psychology, we're trying, we're trying not to feel nervous. We're trying not to feel angry. We're trying to get rid of those uncomfortable feelings that we're having when we play and compete. And in Anthony's um, blueprint or in his way, we accept those feelings as completely normal. So it's, it's completely normal that you're nervous serving for the match at 5-3 in your club championship semifinal or your high school match to beat your rival or wherever you are. Um, and so we accept that and we, we see that as completely normal. And what all we're trying to do is when that happens is you're trying to compete better with those feelings present. And that's a big difference because I had learned, you know, get rid of those feelings. You can't have those feelings. Like you can't win if you have those feelings. And that to me is completely false and not what I experienced at all. Uh, I think the best competitors and the most mentally tough people have all the difficulty, but they're able to sit there with it there, you know, and still compete effectively with all that difficult stuff going on. Yeah. And that's the really hard part, I think, for players because normally and like I said in the, you know the first parts of my career it overtook me and if I was nervous I was just nervous and I stayed nervous yeah. and then as I learned and had more experience and you know reflected and then I was able to actually go okay yeah now I'm nervous but I, I can still do this and yeah. now I'm going to concentrate on this like you just said it with Johnny Murray he was in pro you know nervous out of his mind and anxious He's like, okay, I'm going to keep my left arm up. Well, there's a helpful attention, a helpful thought. And he was able to execute while he felt nervous. Yep. And that's the main key to me, to his whole system is, uh, is that. Yep. Uh, and I think that with a skillful coach, um, you can build the skills to compete effectively, even when the difficult stuff is going on. Yeah, no, very, very, very well put. And I think a big, a big one I've experienced with players when they're kind of going through that process of, of learning that and, you know, experiencing the different, using the different strategies, the recognition, the ability to be aware is the like afterwards. Well, I obviously wasn't doing it right. I wasn't present because I was still feeling bad. And I think that's also been quite a big one in almost the next stage of learning that by being present, by being aware that you are experiencing certain emotions and then bringing yourself back to the present doesn't mean you now feel good, <laughs> you know? And it's yeah. like, and that's, that's a really difficult one. I think also for players to get their head around it's, a, it's about, and I guess the way that, you know, Anthony says it, I don't know if he says it exactly like this, but that mental toughness is, is the ability to be ready to compete with a, with a clear, helpful attention, no matter how you feel, you know, and that kind of no matter how you feel bit is I think what you're, what you're saying and what I certainly 
believe in massively you know and it's if if people can take those messages away and people can work on that not just on the tennis court but in life as well i think it, it certainly puts you in a much stronger place no question and it's the, the in my opinion the higher the level then the closer the level of tennis right i mean yeah. everybody's good when you get into high itf juniors or yeah. pros or wherever everyone's good everyone can play and now that stuff actually starts to matter more rather than less yeah. um so I, I think it's incredibly important in the development of someone who is serious about getting the most out of uh, of their ability and what are some of your as we've i guess we've kind of kept jumped in between playing coaching it's you've been so good to give all this time up to to share to share your thoughts hussy it really honestly it's, it's been a fantastic chat what are some of your philosophies as as a tennis coach yeah you get asked that a lot and i think that i think good coaches your philosophy evolves um, yep. i think as you learn new things and figure things out it it, it evolves it changes um somewhat but i think that I mean, firstly, I'm athlete-centered. I think that we coaches have to make decisions in the best interest of the athlete all the time. Um, and that doesn't mean that we always say yes or that we always do what they want to do. In fact, far from it. But we have to realize that in all the decisions that we make, that, uh, that they're, the, the athlete is the center and we're trying to serve them and help them as best we can. Um, and so that's the, so kind of the first thing I would say. And then the second thing we touched on, I want to develop them as competitors. Um, like I said, you, you have to be able to compete well if you want to have good success. I've seen so many players, and I'm sure you have too, Dan, that hit the ball amazingly well. Um, but when they get into difficult situations, adversity, wind, travel, whatever it may be, it gets a lot harder. Um, yep. So developing as competitors, I think, is really important. Uh, and then improving their skills. Uh, I think the, the more tools you have, the more chance you, you, know, you have. You don't want to just have a good forehand and a good backhand. Um, you want to be able to slice. You want to be able to volley. You want to be able to play higher, play lower. So I think developing skills is incredibly important. And then I'll steal one from my fellow coach and really good friend, Chris Tonts, because I agree with him. And he says, you know, players at the best level generally have one of two things. They either have power or they can move like lightning. They're really good movers. Yeah. And he said, and, and I kind of agree with that. When you look around at the successful players, a lot of them have power. Uh, if they don't have power, then they're really good movers. Yeah. Uh, and then obviously the special ones, what do they have? They have both, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they have both. They, they, they have power and they can move. Um, and so they're things that I try to develop. Um, if, if the, if the player I'm working with isn't so strong or doesn't have a, you know, much of either, then those are the things I'm trying to develop. And I love the Spanish way of developing, you know, loading and racket head, racket head skills and, and playing on clay. Yeah. Um, I think that's really, really important for playing. So kind of gelling those, those, I guess, four things together would kind of be, you know, kind of my philosophy on, on how I'm teaching. And what's, what's next for Stephen Huss, the coach? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I think right now, um, I've just, we've just, I'm in Atlanta right now and 
Uh, I'm not no longer with USTA, obviously. And so I'm trying to work with just good level players, anyone who's serious about getting better. Um, and I'm really interested in just doing training blocks with players, whether they're juniors or pros or wherever they are um, and helping them in that way, because I'm not really up for so much travel like I used to do. Uh, I have two young kids now and I want to be home with them while they still want to be home with me. Um, yeah. And uh, so I don't think, I don't see myself traveling as much over the next sort of 10 years as perhaps a, a full-time pro would want. Um, but I still want to be in that world because I think it's where I'm suited and what I'm most passionate about. Uh, and then apart from that, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in coach education. I, I'm, I've just started my master's in sport coaching um, from University of Queensland. And I, I've sort of realized to impact players um, is fantastic and fun, but geez, if we can impact coaches to then impact players, uh, we may be able to have a bigger impact. And that really stems from the help that I've got um, from the mentors that I've had, you know, other coaches. And, you know, the USTA was a fantastic place to work because of the quality of coaches in there and the resources that are available to talk to in, in all areas of tennis. Um, so they've helped me so much. Um, so I'd love to continue to learn from other coaches and then pass on the knowledge that I've learned to coaches. And if we can continue to elevate the standard of coaching um, everywhere around the world, um, then tennis is only going to get better. Um, kids are going to be better. Um, and I don't mean just better players. They're going to be more you know, well-rounded individuals. Um, and, you know, the things that tennis teach everybody uh, will stand out. And I think we'll have better people and we'll have better, better tennis players as well. So that's kind of um, what may be in my, uh, in my future. I am having to pull myself back from asking questions on coach education, because I think it's probably a podcast in itself, um, you know, to kind of, if we start opening that door, then I think we could we could be set in for another 30, 45 minutes. And I, I don't think that's fair to you and it's not fair to our listeners in one go, but maybe we jump back on in a couple of months because I do, I, I would love to get your thoughts, you know, at some point, you know, of what, what does a good coach education system look like? You know, how, how important is coach education? How do we do coach education right? You know, there's... It, it, it can be, and one of my, I guess just to share one of my thoughts on that is one of my pet peeves is when coach education is done as a tick box and and that coaches do, I'm going on a coach education course because I've got to get license points. You know, this kind of attitude that, that, that coaches have on it when it is such a, a massive, massive area exactly for the reasons that you've given it. So uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on that in two minutes and then maybe we jump back on, a, on another podcast another time on it. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm still trying to learn those things as, as, as well, Dan. But one thing I really have been strong on is, I mean, I love doing getting the education, going to do a certificate, learning more things. Um, and, you know, if, if you're really serious about being a better coach, then you're not just ticking a box. You want to go and do it. Yeah. But I, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any, um, you can't replace experience. I mean, yeah. you, you have to get out there and you have to coach people. Um, yeah. And, you know, I've had great experience coaching boys, men, girls, women, um, adults, you know, juniors, when I was younger, I did some stuff with them. So the experience you get out there 
is I think the best teaching tool. And if you can combine that with the expertise of coaching courses and experts around the world, and then, you know, bringing in the biomechanics and the statistics and the video and learning about nutrition and, 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 and all the areas that kind of holistic approach. Um, now we're talking about, you know, great coach education. Um, but I, I, I just can't say how much I've learned from the players that I've worked with in the environments that I've been in. Um, and I'm fortunate to say that, you know, I, I've been able to work with both genders and across a few different levels. So yep. um, that experience is, is incredibly important, I think, you know, in addition to what you can do educationally in a classroom or yeah. from a from a seminar. Yep. Yeah, and I think that's also where mentorship is so important. You know, I think I certainly again I'm far from the expert on this, but I I I think it's it's about a talent ID pool to a degree of and when I say talent ID, it's of, of coaches about let's find out who the real committed coaches are in whatever area of the industry it is if it is coaching professional players you know I think it's about trying to then match up younger coaches with more experienced coaches like yourself in in a mentorship way you know and actually learning on the job you know and I think that's that's where true true learning can really happen you know rather than you know in, in a seminar okay some knowledge can be passed on but you know, if you you're traveling with somebody 70 in the world, I've never coached someone 70 in the world. Now I go and spend two weeks with you actually doing it in 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 the absolute living that living that life. I think it's it's unbelievable the amount that I learn. And it's it's trying to facilitate those mentorships and, and those abilities to do that. I think for true education to happen as well. Who was, if I could turn a question around on you, Dan, who, who has uh, mentored you in your coaching? Who yeah, has been a, influential? I think it's a, re, it's, a, it's a good question. I think uh, Louis Kaya has in a, in a way that he wouldn't necessarily know. Um, okay. And what, you know, what, what I mean by that is I've been fortunate to have been in his, in his company a lot. You know, I've been fortunate and I, and I guess I've, I've searched it, you know, I've been very curious, but I would say he's been massively, massively influential, you know, on me. Um, and that's something that at any, at any step or turn, if I've got a, an option to have dinner with him, if I've got an option to jump on one of his sessions, I would say um, Anthony Ross, definitely, you know, and, and I think on, on that side, and that's how I would, I would look at the way that we've worked with Anthony. It's, ultimately the psychology side is a, an area of, of massive interest for me but again I feel I've gone and searched out who I believe is the best in the business on that you know it's somebody who it's I I absolutely you know I love his framework I love his model and rather than just reading about it I've I've made sure I've made that connection so that I'm I'm learning how to do it how to deliver it how to how, how to live it every day um, and then I've also been fortunate enough, actually, my first ever tennis coach, John Willis, who coached me from the age of seven, I would still call him my tennis coach. You know, I'm now, yep. age, I'm now age 40 um, and 33 years later, you know, he's, he's at the end of a phone um, when, whenever I need him. And, and, and lastly, 
again, and these people deserve credit and some of them won't, might not realize they've mentored me, but is, is actually a business partner of mine, Nick Morgan, who's actually a very good friend of mine. And I would say he's also played a real strong mentor role over the last 10 and a half years as I've kind of built the academy. I didn't know anything really about business, you know, and he's he's been involved in business now for 20 years and and he was also a very good tennis player. So he's always been a, a sounding board. And 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 I think without without those kind of key people, and I apologize if I've left anybody out because there's been a lot of people have influenced me, but if without having those sort of people in my life, I don't see how I would continue to develop really you know i see though that 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 role is is vitally important yeah no question i mean the sometimes the best education and learning we can get is from the people around us um just hugely influential yeah and i think it's i guess again i said i wouldn't go into this topic because i know it's an area of, of of interest for us both but i suppose again my advice to coaches because i know a lot of coaches are listening here it's 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 having the curiosity and it's having that. I do believe if we, if a coach is curious that they go and find this information and they, they go and find these relationships, you know, I'm not sure it's always like, let's just wait for it to come to me. You know, I think it's, and, and I guess my, my last one would be control the controllables. This is going to be episode 76 and like speaking to people like yourself, Hussey for a couple of hours, you know, having these, I spoke to Valerie Condos Fields, who she was a UCLA gymnastics coach for 29 years. Oh my goodness, the amount I learned from her was just like off the charts. And then uh, I've managed to have emails and back and forth as well. So I, I would say this this has been it was never the reason, but this has turned out to be a, a massive source of education for me that really every podcast I do really invigorates me and gives me different ideas and, you know, sparks off and moves my philosophies and, and develops me as well. So I certainly feel very fortunate to be doing these as well. Yeah, no question. And that's why uh, we listen to these things so we can learn something. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Hussey, honestly, mate, I've absolutely loved it, but we, we do have our, you will know all about the quick fire round. Yes. So yes, I've heard many. The control the controls I'm, i don't think i've got any secrets here so it's going to be quick but i would be interested um in your opinions actually woodbridge or woodford <laughs> um, well i i know both of them a little bit now i never did when they were playing so much but uh both fantastic guys and oh god i, I you can't you can't separate them i'm sorry Come on, you got to go righty. You got to go righty on this. <laughs> um, doubles or singles? Singles. If I was good at singles, I would have played singles. I wasn't good enough. <laughs> I know all about that. ATP Cup or Davis Cup? Oh, I love Davis Cup. College or pro? Pro. I formation or normal formation? Both. Depends who's returning. Use them both. Don't don't do one or the other. You got to figure out if you're losing serve, you got to do something different. So use them both. But love love eye formation. Yep, love it. And even better, eye formation and poach. That's the that's the quick fire answer. Favorite <laughs> your favorite Grand Slam. Wimbledon. Always was. Right. Okay. Yep. Forehand or backhand. Backhand. 
Is that because of the elbow that your coach messed up on when you were younger? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Although if I'm uh, if I'm coaching someone, which I am, I mean, I want them to be fore, forehand dominant. But I love the grace of a of a good backhand, yeah, especially a single hander. Uh, warm up on the court or no warm up on the court? Two minutes is plenty. Injury timeout or not? Not. Would you have said that when you were a player? Yep. And one rule change that you would have in tennis? Uh, I don't know if this counts, but on the sides of the court, of the spectators, come in and out, move around as much as you want. No restrictions. Don't have to sit there and wait till the change of ends. If it's behind, then you have to wait. But if it's on the side, just move around and come in and out as much as you want. Perfect. Thanks a lot, Hussey. You've been a, you've been a top man, and I think people are going to learn a lot from that podcast. So, thank you very much, and hope you and the family are well. Thanks, Dan. Take care there in Spain, mate. Appreciate it. Take care. A big thank you to Steve Huss for for joining us on Control the Controllables. Lots lots of content in that podcast. Would love to hear your thoughts. Uh, it's certainly very thought-provoking for me, even just getting involved in that conversation with, with Steve. You can see he's he's a thinker. You know, he's not someone who uh, just has random opinions. He, he likes to back his opinion up. He, he likes to have objective data to, to come along with that. Do, do we have enough of that in tennis? You know, is it taking over? Uh, you know, I'd love to hear what side of the coin you are on with that. As we talked about in the podcast, he, he had to find different ways to win tennis matches. He wasn't quite the kind of boom, boom tennis, but he certainly had a fantastic tennis IQ on the court. Uh, another one that wasn't a top, top junior, you know, and we're seeing these stories time and time again. You know, continue to develop your skills, keep your passion really high you know do do what you love and and keep going you know keep going in this sport you know you you never know when you're going to get your day you also never know quite when you're going to realize all of the amazing messages and networks and all of the things that you're going to pick up it really is a special sport uh, it really is special to continue having these great guests saturday brings us to a bit of a landmark Number 75, uh, when when I think we, we only started it a few months ago. Um, so as always, I promise I never take it for granted that you guys are, are listening to, to these podcasts. Um, I've had a bit of a week of, of recording podcasts and I'm really excited for what I'm bringing to you over the next couple of weeks. So um, keep sub- subscribing. Please do keep sharing. Uh, If you think that it's worth listening to, you know, rate it, review it, share with a friend, share with the players at your tennis club, share with your friend on the balcony, uh, where unfortunately some of you will be going into lockdown in the UK right now. Um, So please don't hesitate to get in touch. And some of you that are listening to this a little bit later, hopefully we've said goodbye to this pandemic by now. Um, Keep smiling, keep your chins up. And thank you so much for your support. I'm Dan Kiernan. My co-host, John McGann. We are Control the Controllables.